Amen. Well, we are going to be in the Psalms today, uh, a book that addresses our worship and our, our prayers. Um, I don't know about you, prayer is one of the areas that uh, I would just identify as an area of greatest struggle. Um, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to have that all figured out, right? I know that's a, that's a confession right there. I don't think I'm alone. I think the disciples also struggled with prayer. Matter of fact, uh, here in, in Luke's gospel, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So I think Jesus' disciples, too, felt inadequate with approaching a holy God. Um, how, how, do, how do we go about doing that? And there's so many other distractions, right, that keep us from prayer. And uh, I just find it interesting. The disciples could have asked Jesus for help in any number of different areas, in administration, in, 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 in evangelism, in, in teaching techniques, right? But instead, they asked Jesus to help them, to teach them to pray. And I think the other thing that I'm struck with here is that prayer doesn't just come automatically. Like, I don't just automatically relate uh, to God and know how to approach him. I have to learn how to pray. <laughs> the disciples had to learn how to pray. I have to learn how to pray. We have to learn how to pray. We have to grow in this area. And the Psalms are one of the great gifts that God has given us to teach us how to pray. So most of what we've looked at so far in our Route 66 series has been the books of history, tracing out the history of God's creation, the fall of humanity into sin, and then the unfolding of God's redemptive plan centered on Abraham and his descendants, the people of Israel. So that's been sort of this timeline, but now we step out of the timeline a bit to look at some of the, the books of, uh, of the writings uh, and that's where the Psalms fall here. So we get a chance to sort of think about our relationship with God in this whole area of prayer and worship. A few uh, brief things to help orient us to the Psalms. Uh, 150 chapters, by the way, that we're going to look at today in one sermon. We'll, we'll be done by four at least today. Uh, Psalms are poems put to music. So again, it is a different genre, and these were intended to be sung to the accompaniment of musical instruments. That's part of what the word psalms means and conveys. Uh, we typically think of poetry in terms of rhyme, but Hebrew poetry uh, employs a, a type of parallelism where uh, the psalmist gives one statement and then a second statement, and those two statements relate to one another. So here's an example of Hebrew poetry. Psalm 2, verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. So in a sense, the psalmist says the same thing twice, doesn't he? Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Slightly different emphasis. Maybe in some case it's an expansion of thought. In some cases the second line might actually be a contrast to the first line. Or a, uh, we say it positively and then we say it negatively. But that type of 
parallelism is one of the key marks of Hebrew poetry. But just understand, we're into a different genre here. You can't read the Psalms like you read the book of Leviticus, right? The Psalms were composed by numerous authors over the course of a thousand years. So we have Psalms composed by Moses. We have Psalms composed, many Psalms composed by David, of course. And we even have some Psalms that were composed after the exile, long after the time of David. So a variety of authors composed these various songs and prayers. Another thing we should just notice here is that the headings in the Psalms are part of the text. So in many cases, in in your Bibles, you might have a heading, and that was put there by the translator or the publisher, just to help kind of orient you in the text. In the Psalms, the headings are part of the text, and so they uh, can be really significant in helping us know the, the backdrop, the context, why the psalmist was writing what they were writing. Many of the psalms also reflect obvious planning and meticulous organization. We might think that these are just, you know, spontaneous expressions of praise. I would suggest to you that they're not, by and large. Uh, Matter of fact, there's a number of them. Uh, Psalms 9, 10, 25, 34, 37, 111, 112, 119, and 145 that are acrostic psalms. In other words, each verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Amazing, just in the, the type of thought, forethought that was given before David, let's say, approached God. He gave careful thought to organizing his words. Maybe something uh, helpful for us to consider, right? That we don't approach God flippantly. He deserves our best. Uh, We ought to give thought to that. I think that's modeled in the Psalms. And for the most part, you don't even see that happening in the Psalms. You don't see some of that nuance and texture. Psalm 119 is the exception in our English translations. Every section begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and they do give a little uh, indicator in most of our English translations. And so you, but there's a number of psalms that are like that. Uh, the psalms were compiled at a later time to form a songbook. So we have the context of each individual author composing a psalm with their specific set of circumstances and emotions and backdrop. Then at a later time, actually after the Exodus, the psalm, these various psalms and songs were collected and compiled and organized by an editor. Okay? So, and, and this editor, th- these individuals had their own purposes for writing and, and praying and singing. But the editor also had his purposes in arranging the songs in the order in which he arranged them. So there's some layers of what God is is doing here uh, in the Psalms. Psalms is comprised of five sections or books. This again is indicated in your English translations. They again are not arranged chronologically but thematically. 
there's a lot of questions about how they're arranged, why they're arranged the way that they are. We'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, they're, they're, they're grouped into these five different books. And each book ends with a doxology, a, a brief word of praise to God that kind of closes that book. The book of Psalms is quoted more times in the New Testament than any other book. We're going to be looking at some of those quotations, particularly as we uh, consider how the Psalms points us to Christ. And the Psalms resonate with our emotions and real life experiences. Uh, There's a certain rawness to the Psalms. They speak to our joy, our anger, and our depression. And um, I have to be honest, I, like, I just felt really down today. 9.30 service, whew, I was deflated. I, don't, I can't explain it. Um, I, I think there's a spiritual warfare element to it. I think uh, the enemy is at work in our minds. Um, but that's where we live, you know. I, I don't live there all the time. <laughs> But we live with these range of emotions. We feel like we're a failure. We feel like, um, you know, my, maybe things are not where I want them to be in my work. Or this relationship is broken and it just doesn't seem like there's any way forward. Or, uh, you know, we, 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 this is where we live, right? In the midst of the struggles and the Psalms connects with where we are at. Uh, Spurgeon, the British preacher, of course, battled depression, and um, he had several periods of his life where he actually had to step out of ministry. He threatened to retire, and they said, no, just, let's just try to get you better, and uh, we'll send you to France. They sent him uh, from, uh, from cloudy London to sunny France on a number of occasions to just try to recuperate. But in one of those stints, Spurgeon wrote uh, a commentary on the Psalms. And he said this, he said, Although the comments were the work of my health, the rest of the volume is the product of my sickness. When protracted illness and weakness laid me aside from daily preaching, I resorted to my pen as an available means of doing good. And so Spurgeon, he connected in a unique way with the Psalms during a season in which he felt particularly discouraged. There's something there that resonated with him. And there's a song there for every season, right? No matter the emotion. Well, how are the books organized? There is no clear consensus about how they're organized, okay? Um, One of the things that we can see pretty clearly is a general movement from lament in the beginning to praise or hope at the end. Okay, so there's that, that, that everyone can agree on, but the particular focus of the five books is unclear. So I don't want to be in any way dogmatic about this, but um, I think this was a helpful way of thinking about the progression and maybe, again, just help you to, to process this a little bit. Uh, book one, chapters one through 41, I've just used the little word running. This was David on the run. He's running from King Saul. A lot of laments here in these early chapters. Um, So I think 
if we understand it this way, the Psalms in some sense tell the story of Israel's history, particularly related to God's covenant with David. So we kind of pick up there. Most all of those first 41 Psalms are from David, and most of them relate to a lot of hard experiences. Psalm 18, specifically, the heading says that that Psalm was composed when he was delivered from Saul. Uh, Psalm 23, right? The valley of the shadow of death. Uh, Again, seemingly flows out of that period of his life. Psalm 34, uh, David remembers how God delivered him from the Philistines. That too was while he was on the run from Saul. And then Psalm uh, Book 2, chapters 42 to 72, I, I use the word rain. We do have a number of Psalms in this section that speak of David's um, reign as king, now, now, now that he has become king. And it's not always good stuff, like Psalm 51 is his uh, psalm of confession after his sin with Bathsheba. Um, psalms 54 through 64 describe David's heartache when he was betrayed. And we know that he was betrayed by his son Absalom. As a matter of fact, he had to flee Jerusalem at one time. A number of his closest uh, confidants turned against him. Uh, the book 3, chapter 73 to 89, I use the word siege, uh, seems to capture a period of decline in Israel from Solomon to the fall of Jerusalem. We know that after, after Solomon, things went downhill pretty quickly, didn't they? The kingdom was divided, the nation was weakened. Uh, at a certain point, the northern kingdoms were conquered and taken into captivity, and then uh, we have some time that passes before Jerusalem finally falls, but Jerusalem is under siege. There's several attacks. Uh, this seems to be the sense of this section. Matter of fact, in Psalm 89, the last psalm there in book 3, we read, Remember, Lord, how your servants have been mocked, how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations. So we get this sense of a uh, of a nation that's in disarray and beleaguered. Uh, Book 4, I put the word exile. Begins with a psalm of Moses and ends by recounting Israel's chronic rebellion. And um, I don't know about you, when I think of Moses, I think of the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness and because of their sin and, and their constant complaining and right all of these things that are part of Israel's history, and while they're in exile, uh, they're, they're made to think about these things. Uh, Psalm 107 to 150, book 5, is clearly more hopeful. Um, we have in Psalm 107 a specific reference to the fact that they had been brought back from exile. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those redeemed from the hand of the foe, those He gathered from the lands from east and west, from north and south. So this is a a time of restoration, of renewed hope. Uh, Here we also have the Psalms of Ascent. There's 14, 15 Psalms, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 that were psalms of ascent. Jerusalem was uh, a high point in the country. Uh, 
in terms of, of its elevation. And the people had to go there at least three times a year for various feasts and festivals. And so these are the songs they would sing as they would go up to Jerusalem. And no matter where you were coming from, you always went up to Jerusalem. <laughs> Whether you were coming from the north or the south or the east or the west, you would always go up. And so again, these psalms are placed here, uh, maybe even as the people think about being brought back from exile. Once again, they were going up to Jerusalem. So just, just some loose uh, categories here. Uh, we're not really sure uh, definitively why they're organized the way that they are. Uh, I mentioned that at the end of each of the five books, there is a doxology. And at the end of uh, book five, there is an expanded doxology. Matter of fact, the last five books of the Psalms uh, all begin and end with the phrase, praise the Lord. I mean, it just a, it's like the, the finale of the fireworks, right? You have all the things going up and the sounds and the colors, and then at the end, it's like, you know, and a good fireworks display, right? There's a finale, and that's the sense that you get as you finish those final psalms, a great doxology of praise to God. Well, if we understand there's some measure of organization, we might not understand it all. Uh, that makes the introduction important. Um, again, Psalms 1 and 2 were not placed at the beginning randomly. All right? This is part of uh, the design. And Psalms 1 and 2 are different than the other Psalms. Most of the Psalms are first person. So I'm, I'm declaring either personally or I'm saying I or we, uh, but the first two psalms are more didactic. They are instruction. Uh, and so, at the outset, we're getting a sense as to how we approach God. Psalm 1 and 2 are like the gateway of the psalms. They show us how to approach God. They show us how to live rightly before God and how to live a life of blessing before God. Matter of fact, Psalm 1 begins with a pronouncement of blessing. Psalm 2 ends with a pronouncement of blessing. So uh, Psalm 1 and 2 are, are an introductory unit. They are a prologue to the Psalms. And we see a couple things here. So we read these psalms. First of all, God blesses those who are committed to his word. Notice the emphasis on his word, on his law, on God's commands in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction." 
So again, this declaration of blessing for those who delight in the law of the Lord, who follow God's word and his ways. They are like, did you catch the imagery here? They're like a a flourishing tree uh, that grows and produces fruit and uh, is impervious to drought, right? Planted by rivers of water, a constant source of nourishment. And in contrast, the wicked, those who disregard God's law, are like chaff, they come to nothing, they blow away, they come under God's judgment. So God blesses those who are committed to his word. And then Psalm 2, God blesses those who take refuge in his son. Psalm 2, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the psalmist says there are some who stand up and shake their fists at God, right? They like, they're arrayed in battle against the Lord. I mean, they are not going to submit to his reign. They, they want nothing to do with his authority. They are their own kings. And the one enthroned in heaven laughs, <laughs> right? The Lord scoffs at them. The Lord humbles them. He breaks them like pottery, it says, Those who exalt themselves before the Lord will be humbled. But those who humble themselves before the Lord will be shown mercy, will find grace. So he urges them to kiss his son. He's been describing the anointed one, his king, his son, who he has appointed to be ruler over the nations. Bow before him. Put down your weapons. Bow your knee. Right? And you will be shown mercy. But if you stand defiant against God and his appointed ruler, you will come to destruction. So God blesses those who are committed to his word, who walk in his ways. And God blesses those who take refuge in his son, who humble themselves before his appointed king. What a great psalm that directs our attention to Christ. There's a number of psalms that would be called messianic psalms or psalms that that point to the Messiah. And Psalm 2 is clearly one of them. It is describing God's king and urging us to humble ourselves before that king. There's the the gospel in Psalm 2, right? Here's the proclamation of good news. Uh, Find mercy 
by humbling yourself and looking to God's anointed one, his king, his son. So there's the, the gateway, right out, right, right, that kind of directs our thinking, uh, guides our, our, our path here as it relates to uh, our approach to God. Uh, Psalms are intended as a guidebook for worship and prayer. Uh, they teach us to pray. Um, we would tend to maybe focus more on spontaneous prayers, right? Those uh, seem more authentic in our tradition. But I would suggest to you that there's great value in using prepared prayers in learning from the Psalms how to pray, how to approach God, how to address God, what to pray for. We can bring all of our needs and desires to the Lord, but but the psalmist teaches us how to pray. And I think... um, Jesus did something similar with his disciples, right? They said, teach us to pray. And Jesus did not wax into a philosophical treatise on prayer. He prayed. He he gave them a template uh, of how they were to pray. And the the Psalms provides us with that template. And so in the few minutes we have remaining, I want us to just consider three of the main types of psalms. Again, there's a variety of categories. People divide them up differently, but we can agree on a few main categories of psalms. And we'll just consider an example from each one of those. But again, these provide some pathways, some ways for us to think about how we can and should approach God. The first category of prayers here is Psalms of Lament. Psalms of Lament. And I want to highlight chapter 12, Psalm 12, as a good example of how a Psalm of Lament would work. This is a Psalm of David. We're told that here in the heading. And as most Psalms of Lament, it begins with a complaint. There's something wrong. Psalm 12, verse 1, Help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter with their lips, but harbor deception in their hearts. I love this uh, particular lament. Sometimes the lament is focused on a particular person, right, who maybe has betrayed them, or a particular enemy. But here the lament is just like, the culture. Like, ah, it just seems like no one is faithful to you anymore, Lord. Everyone's lying. The ways they speak about you, about uh, your world, it's all wrong. (laughs) I mean, this this is a great psalm for our our day, a great lament for our day. I mean, marriage is being refined, gender is being redefined, right? All, All these things that just grieve us. So there's a complaint here, and then a cry for help in verses 3 and 4. May the Lord silence all flattering lips and every boastful tongue. Those who say, by our tongues we will prevail, our own lips will defend us. Who is Lord over us? So the psalmist says, God, silence the arrogant people who are speaking lies. Quiet them. Don't allow them to... 
be able to influence by their lies. May the Lord silence all flattering lips, every boastful tongue. And then in a psalm of lament, there's an affirmation of trust. So the psalmist doesn't just languish. Oh man, things are so bad, it's terrible, I'm just, oh, I'm in a funk. No, the psalmist then stops to consider and rehearse his confidence in God. (laughs) So notice it here in verse 5. Because the poor are plundered and the needy grown, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. So he says, when the poor and the plundered cry out to God, God hears their cries and he, he stands up and he, he arises and he comes to their defense. He's promised to do so and his words are trustworthy and true. Like silver that has been put on the fire and the impurities have been, uh, have been taken off the top, uh, God's word is trustworthy and true and he will do it and he will defend his people. So the psalmist rehearses what he knows to be true about God, the defender of the defenseless, the one who brings perfect justice. And so, again, a great pattern here of a psalm of lament. Uh, There's different subcategories of lament. Uh, There are penitential psalms. These are psalms where a person uh, repents of their sin. So, Sometimes the problem is out there. It's the culture. It's that person. It's this regime. It's, sometimes the problem is right here. <laughs> the problem is me. <laughs> and so sometimes that's the, 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 the lament is, God, I, I, I'm, I, I've rebelled against you. I, I, I stand under your judgment, right? The number of psalms that uh, are psalms of confession uh, there are imprecatory psalms. Uh, we don't know quite what to do with these. These are psalms in which I ask God to destroy my enemies. Uh, God, I call down a curse on them. Can a Christian really pray that prayer? There's a lot of debate about this. You know, what do we do with the imprecatory psalms? But at the end of the day, what are we doing? We're, we're, we're entrusting justice to God. I'm not going out and doing vigilante stuff and wielding the sword. I'm just saying, God, something's not right here. It's not fair. And I, and I ask you, God, to bring about justice in this situation. And that's a good prayer, uh, no matter where we're, we're sitting. So, so a lot of different types of laments, uh, but all of them, again, come with something heavy, a grievance on the heart. There are more psalms of lament than any other type of psalm. 62 of the 150 would be in this category. Some of them are corporate lament, where the nation is grieving over something. But the vast majority are individual lament. There's an honesty, a rawness that characterizes the psalms. We can bring our frustrations and our anxieties and our complaints to him. God reveals himself to us as one who cares about our pain and sustains us in it. There's one thing we learn here about God in the Psalms. It's that he is 
concerned about our plight. He's listening to the prayers, the laments of his people. I I don't know what the challenges are for you in the area of prayer, but for me, one of them is distraction. Um, And I think that's why there's great wisdom when we pray. I mean, we can pray when we're driving down the road or I'm heading to that appointment, but I think there's great wisdom in in seeing prayer as a destination. Jesus went to the mountaintop to pray, right? He got away from the crowds so he'd be free of distraction. But there's another level of distraction for me. Like, I I can be completely by myself and be distracted. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm thinking about all sorts of things are popping into my mind. And I think sometimes I've had this thought, like, okay, I need to silence my mind, you know, I mean, I need to, I need to silence my mind and think pious thoughts about God. Uh, but I think when we read the Psalms of Lament, we realize, no, I, I can actually, that, that burden pops into my mind. I've got that appointment. I've got to counsel somebody, and I don't know, I don't know how to counsel them. And that's on my mind. I just, just take that to the Lord. God, I find my mind just consumed with worry right now. I want to help this person, and I don't know how to help them. You know, that, that, that's a great entry point to prayer. I don't have to squash that thought and, and, and just think about something pious. I can approach God with my, my trouble. Um, the psalmist models that time after time after time. So Psalms of Lament, I think probably one of, the, one of the most neglected categories of psalms. Even corporately, we want to be happy. We want to sing happy songs. And we struggle with lament. Just even corporately uh, recognizing um, our sorrow and our, and our grief. Uh, there are also psalms of praise. Uh, again, just a few of them listed there, references. Psalm 113 is the psalm that I'd like to highlight briefly here. With a psalm of praise, there is a call to worship, right? So this is very typical, Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. So a a declaration of praise. And more than just a declaration of praise, I'm going to praise the Lord. There's actually an exhortation, like a call for others to join me. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, all his saints. Praise the Lord, all his servants. I'm I'm urging you to join me in in praising the Lord. So a a call to worship, and then in a a psalm of praise, there's a description of God's acts or his attributes. There's some reason why we are praising the Lord. So here in Psalm 113, verse 4, The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. So here's this 
description of God's great attributes. Here in this particular case, it's God's transcendence, right? Why do we praise the Lord? Because he's exalted over all the nations. I I love the imagery here. He, He stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. The things that are so big to me in my world, right, that, are, that induce such fear and frustration and anger, these, God's concerned about these things, but these things don't overwhelm God. He's like, oh yeah, I see that going on down there, right? I mean, God is not in a panic about who won the election or about the latest COVID numbers. It's not that he's not concerned about these things, but he's, he's certainly not unsettled by them. They're not beyond him. He's not like, oh, my, that, that pandemic thing really got out of control. I, I thought I had it contained, and here it cropped up over here. No, that, that's not. That's not God, God is over all of his creation. And so this great psalm of praise, just because God's above it all, uh, the psalmist just reflects on that and gives him praise. And again, closes with another call to praise and obedience. Praise the Lord in verse 9. What is the chief end of man, according to the Catechism? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We are created to bring praise to our Maker. And that's where we find true joy and fulfillment and peace. When we place ourselves at the center of the narrative, everything gets out of whack, doesn't it? When I lose sight of the fact that God is, is over all the heavens and the earth, he's stooping down, right, uh, to monitor his creation, uh, I, I, my, I find my heart goes to worry and anxiety. Oh, what's going to happen here? And if I remember that God is over it all, right? Okay, whew. Uh, anger, you know, this is so frustrating. What's happening over here? And when I realize that God is not, God, God will accomplish vengeance in his own time, in his own way. He, I don't have to keep score anymore. What a freeing feeling. Right? In, in, in marriage, right, we, we try to do things our way, and we try to navigate that, and, and that usually doesn't work out very well. But when we, we kind of put ourselves in our place, and we realize God designed marriage to function in a certain way. He's called me to, to live in a certain way within my marriage, and to, to lead and to, to sacrifice for my wife, and I, and I, and I begin to, to put God in his place, and I put me in my place, all of a sudden, uh, things work like they're supposed to work. It doesn't mean that we don't have struggles like everybody else, right? But put ourselves in a, in a, in a place uh, where we can flourish. And uh, I, I couldn't help but think about that with these psalms of praise, just psalms of acknowledging who God is. We so need that in the midst of our angers and our worries, range of emotions to just remember that God is God and I don't have to be God. Um, So yeah, psalms of praise and then uh, psalms of thanksgiving are a final category. Uh, The three really main categories of psalms, lament, praise, and thanksgiving. In psalms of praise, we acknowledge God for who he is, his, his attributes, his character. Psalms of thanksgiving are usually more focused on thanking God for specific things that he has done. Psalm 34 is the one that I would highlight here. Uh, 
And again, we have uh, a description here, a heading at the beginning of Psalm 34 of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech who drove him away and he left. Do you remember the account? David's running from King Saul. He gets so desperate, he actually goes to hide among the Philistines, which was a really bad idea. Okay? Uh, he is recognized by the Philistines. Shocker, right? He killed Goliath. There's songs written about him. He's like, I mean, his, name's, his, his image is on the most wanted posters all throughout the Philistine cities, right? But he goes there to try to, he's so desperate to hide from Saul, he actually goes to the Philistine cities. He's recognized he is being brought before the Philistine king, and he probably knows what's coming, right? And we're told there in the text, when we look at the, 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 the history of it, and, uh, that he pretended to be crazy. He starts drooling and talking funny and staggering around. And, and the Philistine king says, who is this guy? This isn't David. Get him out of my sight. And David is rescued, <laughs> seemingly by his own ingenuity. I mean, it was brilliant part of acting on his part that he got himself out of this situation. But Psalm 34 tells the whole story, it tells the rest of the story that While he's being dragged before the Philistine king, he cries out, God, help me. Probably not audibly, right? But he just to himself, he prays to the Lord, deliver me. And he attributed that all to God. God, in his kindness, delivered David. And David comes back and writes about it and gives thanks to God. We gathered last Sunday at the end of our three-year campaign and just celebrated God's faithfulness. I mean, how do you do a major capital campaign in the midst of a pandemic where you don't pass an offering plate for more than a year, right? And just crazy stuff. And we would be remiss if we did not just stop and say, thank you, God, for your goodness and your kindness to us. Um, This is what's involved in a psalm of thanksgiving, a specific incident where God showed himself to be faithful And we respond by giving him thanks. Well, as we turn attention to the Lord's table, uh, we're going to close with some gospel glimpses out of the Psalms. We've been doing this uh, with each of the books of the Bible, looking at how these various parts of Scripture point us to Christ. And the Psalms are no exception Matter of fact, quoted more in the New Testament than any other book. There are a series of prophecies about the Messiah, the promised deliverer, and the New Testament writers point out how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. Now, you see a bunch of references here. I just want to read a few of these portions out of the Psalms. You tell me if they sound familiar. Psalm 1610, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 22.1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Psalm 22.16, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. 
Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 69, 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me. Psalm 69, 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Psalm 118, 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. All of these things, either said or quoted by Christ or about Christ, and many of them centered specifically on his work on the cross, pointing ahead to not just a deliverer, but a suffering deliverer, one who would somehow bring about salvation through their own suffering. And I find it so interesting that Jesus, in the moment of his greatest need, his greatest agony, right in the Garden of Gethsemane and at the cross, went back to the Psalms. Went back to the songs that he had been taught as a young Jewish boy, thinking about his relationship with the Father. So praise God for giving us a, a guidebook to help us be able to approach God rightly.